Friends, good morning. The Lord be with you. My name is uh, Dave Bast. I'm a member here, a former pastor. And we're now uh, at the fourth of six sermons in a series called Seeing God. So all stories of people in the Bible who had a vision, a direct vision of the person of God, even though God is invisible and can't be seen, we're told that. Nevertheless, they saw something. So we looked at three of them from the Old Testament. Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, he sees asked to see God's glory, and God says, well, I'll show you my goodness, uh, which is actually the chief part of my glory, Um, but you can't see my face, so I'll hide you in a a crack here in the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand, and you can see my back. Wow, whatever that means. Um, And then after that, uh, Isaiah, saw the Lord high and lifted up in his robe, filled the whole temple, and the angels, the seraphim, cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. Last week, Ezekiel, four living creatures, wheels within wheels. He sees, as he put it, the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. So he kind of gets close, but not quite there. Now we're turning to three visions from the New Testament, and they're all visions of Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh. Um, The Gospels, just a little bit about the Gospels, the first three Gospels are known, if you're not as familiar with the Bible, they're known as the synoptic Gospels, from two Greek words meaning to see and with, because they have a kind of common viewpoint and they tell the story of Jesus largely in the same way, the same events, the same episodes. In fact, many of them have duplicates. The story we're gonna hear in just a moment is told in all three of those synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, of course, has a very different flavor and take on the story of Jesus. That's for another time. Um, But early in the first part of the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is strangely reluctant to have his identity um, sort of broadcast. There's almost a secrecy about it. In fact, scholars speak about the messianic secret in the uh, Synoptic Gospels. So Jesus will approach a demon-possessed person who's terribly uh, tormented, and the demons will look up and say, we know who you are, you're the son of God, and Jesus says, shut up, or words to that effect. Or he'll heal somebody, uh, a person who can't speak or a person who can't walk, he'll heal them, and then he'll say, now don't tell anybody about this. (laughs) Yeah, like like that's going to happen. Oh, You can speak now? You can hear? How'd that, you know? So word begins to get out, and crowds are, of course, attracted. And Jesus begins to be overwhelmed 
by all the needs that come to him, and people begin to talk. Who is this guy? What, who could he be? Now, in Matthew 16, there's a story about Jesus taking his disciples away for a kind of retreat uh, north of the land of Israel, and he sits down with them and he asks them, he puts the question to, what are people saying about me? Who do people think I am? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. John had been executed. Some people think you're Elijah, come back to earth from heaven in a fiery chariot. Some people think you might be Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, well, who do you think I am? Peter speaks up for all of them. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo, good one, Peter. Uh, God revealed that to you. It's called his great confession, Peter's great confession. But of course, Peter doesn't really know what it means he thinks it means Jesus is going to come and set himself up on a throne and chase out all Israel's enemies, do in the Romans. And who wouldn't want a Messiah like that? A Messiah who can feed you when you're hungry, heal you when you're sick, lead your armies to unending victories. Maybe that's why he wanted to keep it quiet <laughs> until he was ready to explain to them what being the Messiah would actually entail. So he begins, after Peter's confession, he begins to tell them about the cross. And Peter says, no, that's not right. You can't, that's not what the Messiah does. And Jesus says, the strongest rebuke he ever makes anywhere in the Gospels to Peter, his number one disciple, get behind me, Satan. See, it was exactly the temptation that Satan had presented to Jesus right at the outset of his ministry. Avoid the cross. Take a shortcut to glory. Wow them, you know, with your power. And then they'll all fall down before you. Well, now we come to another story about Jesus' identity with another great confession and also, incidentally, a story where Peter says something dumb again. Let's listen to it. Our scripture this morning comes to us from Matthew 17, verses one through eight. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jan. So let's just talk about the story. The story of the transfiguration. And that's the first thing that happens. It's six days later, Matthew says. Hmm, six days after what? Well, probably six days after Peter's confession. And Jesus, incidentally, uh, Commentators note that six days was often the period of preparation for some great experience. Moses waited six days on Mount Sinai until God appeared and gave him the Ten Commandments. So something's coming. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, uh, up to this high mountain, we're not told where it is, and he's transfigured before them so that his face shines and his clothing appears to be made out of light. Pure glory. Literally, the word Matthew uses is he's metamorphosed uh, in front of them. Uh, transformed. It's as though for one brief moment, the curtain is drawn aside and Jesus' true identity shines through. He, he doesn't look like this anywhere else in the Gospels, interestingly. Even after the resurrection, I don't know if you've ever read the resurrection appearance stories, there's something weird about him. People often don't recognize him. The disciples on Easter evening think he's a ghost. It doesn't say he appeared in his risen body suffused with glory, blinding like the sun. Uh, so what's going on there? Uh, I don't know. That's another, that's another whole story. But here is the one time in the Gospels, it'll happen again as we'll see next week in the book of Acts, but here in the Gospels, this is the one moment when Jesus' blinding glory is revealed. Here's how Dale Bruner describes it in his magisterial commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Here, for the only time in his earthly career, including his resurrection appearances, Jesus' dignity is made gloriously, even spectacularly, clear to the church. 
Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus shine and glow like this. But here, once in his life, Jesus is showered with light and, in a moment, with God's voice. And thus, what Jesus is in God's thinking is made unforgettably clear. It's all about his identity. And they see it. And then they see something else. They see Moses and Elijah appear, verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Uh, so you, you get the scene. Moses and Elijah suddenly are visible to the disciples, and they're, they hear them speaking with Jesus, having a conversation. So what's going on there? Well, <clears throat> a couple of things. Uh, there was an expectation that Moses and especially Elijah would appear at the inauguration of the last days, which is exactly why some of the people were saying they thought Jesus might be Elijah. Later on, we didn't read the part about what happens, the conversation they have as they come down the mountain, but Jesus says, in effect, John the Baptist was Elijah. Uh, if not literally, then he fulfilled Elijah's role, the forerunner. Elijah has come, and they put him to death, and that's what's going to happen to me. But uh, Moses and Elijah are also important. You know, they both had mysterious ends, if you read about them in the, New, in the Old Testament. Moses, it says Moses died, but they never found his body. It also says God buried him whatever that means. Elijah apparently didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Or if he did die, because the whirlwind deposited him back to earth, they didn't find his body either, and they went and looked. Never found it. So neither one. Both disappear without a trace. Mysterious. And here they are on the Mount of Transfiguration. What are they doing there? Well, it's not just a kind of an end of days thing. They are there because they stand for something else. They stand for the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, which is to, to say between them, they represent the Old Testament. And they point to Jesus because it was a bedrock conviction of the early church that the Old Testament was all about Jesus. In fact, it was a bedrock conviction of Jesus that the Old Testament was about Jesus. There's a, a wonderful passage in John chapter five where Jesus is engaged with his critics, the leaders, you know, the Pharisees and those folks, um, and he says to them, you search the scriptures, meaning the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, law and the prophets, because you think that in them you find eternal life, and they it is that teach about me. Moses one day will be your judge because he wrote about me and you didn't believe him. So Bruner says, 
<laughs> memorably. Whenever we read the Old Testament, we have to make sure we have our Jesus glasses on. Do we see him there? He's foreshadowed all over the place. He's the Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice on the altar. He's the mercy seat where God meets his people and the atoning blood is placed. He's the son of David who will reign forever. He's the promised one, not only foreshadowed but foretold. The descendant of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. The suffering servant of Isaiah with whose stripes we are healed. He's all over the place. And Moses and Elijah are there to remind us that it's about Jesus and ultimately only Jesus. Lovely way this, the story ends. They look up and they see only Jesus. That's how Matthew, in fact, the last word in verse 8 is only, alone. They see Jesus alone. So, they point to Jesus. They speak of Jesus from beginning to end. Genesis to Malachi. But they also talk to Jesus, we're told. I wonder what they talked about. They saw Moses and Elijah talking with him. Well, here we get a hint from Luke's version of the story because he says something more. He says what they were talking about was Jesus' departure. And the word Luke uses is exodus, his exodus. That's actually a Greek word. <laughs> they were talking about the cross. They were talking about what Jesus would have to do next, about how the glory was only there for a moment because the glory faded and Jesus would have to go down off the mountain and eventually climb another hill before his work would be finished. They were talking about his exodus, his great act of deliverance. And then Peter speaks up, verse four. I wonder if he'd been thinking about maybe smarting a little bit from Jesus' rebuke six days before, and this time he's, he's determined he's gonna be a little more careful in what he says. He's not just gonna shoot off his mouth, but he can't help himself. He's Peter, he can't help it. And so he says, Lord, this is great. <laughs> this is terrific. Now, if you will, I, I'll ask your permission. I'm not gonna go ahead, you know. If you will, I'll go and build three tabernacles up here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <laughs> what was he thinking? Well, uh, Mark, <laughs> perhaps writing Peter's own personal reminiscence, that's the story behind the Gospel of Mark, incidentally, that it, it ultimately owes to Peter its contents because Mark was a young helper of Peter at the end of his life. Mark says Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He just shot off his mouth. But there may have been a little more to it than that. Maybe Peter saw here an opportunity to kind of cash in 
hey, I'll put up three shrines. Again, what's he thinking? God didn't say, these are my beloved sons. Moses and Elijah don't rank with Jesus. (laughs) Only Jesus. But Peter's thinking, I don't know, maybe he's thinking he can open Bible land on the mountain and people will come streaming up and he can maybe charge admission. Could be a business plan there. In other words, he puts his foot in his mouth against squarely, back in his mouth. Because Peter can't stay on the mountain either. Peter has a long, hard road to travel. And at the end of it, Jesus will tell him, you're going to be led with your hands tied where you don't want to go. And they're going to do to you what they are going to do to me. First the cross, and then the crown. We can't stay on the mountain. We can enjoy it. (laughs) We can revel in it. We can sing about it. We just can't stay there, not yet. While Peter is still speaking, uh, this is great too, while he's still speaking, it's like God can't wait for him to stop because he'll just go on and on and on. So the father interrupts Peter while he's still speaking. A cloud descends of glory and a voice comes out of it. Here's the father's great confession. We heard Peter's. Here's the father's. This is what, this is what God thinks of Jesus. And there are three elements This is my son, my beloved. With him I'm well pleased. Interestingly, all three of those phrases are drawn from the Old Testament. You are my son, that's Psalm 2. My beloved son, That's an echo of the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 when God says, take your son, your only son whom you love. He repeats it. Your only son whom you love and go up to the mountain. Uh, Another prefiguring, another foreshadowing of Jesus. And with you I'm well pleased, that's from the first servant song of Isaiah. It's in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, uh, the one who is pleasing to me, God says. So, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. My only son. The way the language is put, there's an emphasis on the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is God's one and only we might say natural son, (laughs) by nature. St. Augustine's comment is, there's there's all the difference in the world between the only son and adopted sons and daughters. Adoption is great, but it doesn't quite reach the level of God's relationship with Jesus. Again, John says this in uh, sort of condensed fashion. What the synoptics want to show us in this great experience of the transfiguration and the voice from the cloud, John defines for us succinctly 
in uh, the most famous verse from his prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Jesus is the one and only, he's unique. You know what that word means, right? Not very, I know how we use it. It's sort of unique, it's, oh, that's very unique. That's really unique, no. Something is either unique or it isn't. Unique means one of a kind. Jesus is God's unique son, his one and only, his beloved, with whom the Father is pleased, not just because of who he is, but because of what he's doing. The Father is proud of the Son for the same reason you're proud of your children when they do right and when they do well, because he sees the Son following a hard path of obedience, a costly obedience, but it's the right thing to do. One thing we have to guard against We love to talk about the cross. We love to talk about atonement. I know, I do it myself. That's very reformed, you know. We have to guard against any thought that the Father and the Son are at odds at this moment, that the Father is the angry one, the wrathful one, and the Son is the nice one who interposes himself. No. The whole thing It's a family business, (laughs) and it's all love. Because in love, God finds a way to deal with his holy wrath upon sin by bearing it himself in the person of the Son. It's all love, all the way. No wonder (laughs) the Father's proud of the Son finds him pleasing. And then, having heard the voice, they fall on their faces, filled with terror. If they weren't before, (laughs) that's where they are now. And by the way, are you noticing a pattern here about what happens when people actually meet God? their posture, a lot of falling down, a lot of falling down. We'll see it again. And the cloud lifts, the echo of the voice dies away, and Jesus comes and touches them and says, get up. It's a wonderful parable of what he does. A naked experience of God is like electrocution. I said that last week, Uh, Neil Planning is a great line. It's like being electrocuted. But when God robes himself in human flesh, he can touch us, he can take our hand, he can lift us up, he can raise us, and he can say to us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And they saw Jesus only, right? That's a pretty good motto (laughs) for all of us. Now, how to bring this all home? Well, I have three suggestions that I'd like to offer in closing. Something to do, something to believe, and something to imagine. I, I, 
I still have at least five minutes, so don't, you know, don't start thinking about the food truck yet. Because I got more to say. Three things, right? Something to do, something to believe, something to imagine. What's the thing to do? Well, what does the voice say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And what does it mean to listen to Jesus? Once again, a helpful comment from Dale Bruner. The word listen, shema in Hebrew, akuata in Greek, the word is a word deeper than the ear, though it is first of all that. It is a word whose meaning is literally listen with your ears. A word is really listened to in the biblical sense when it is believed. And a word is believed when it is allowed to do its full work, creating in hearers the obedience the word invites. Listen to him means believe what he says and do it. (laughs) Do what he commands, believe his promises, says St. Augustine. It's pretty simple. It's exactly that. It's an agenda for life, pretty much. So, something to do. Next, something to believe. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God has showered or bestowed his grace upon us in the beloved. And that gave rise to a favorite expression of the later reformed uh, divines, the Puritans, who used to say, we are accepted in the beloved. And because of that, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees his beloved son. Because That's what faith does. Faith, again, it's not some kind of intellectual assent merely. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Faith unites us with Christ. We become one with him through faith and all his benefits then flow out into us and for us so that God can truly say, you are my beloved. You are my beloved and I'm well pleased with you right now. Accept it in the beloved. Believe that, but there's no more wrath. God doesn't punish us. That's all been dealt with. God loves us. He may discipline us as a father, a good father, a good mother, disciplines a young child, but not because he doesn't love us. Whoa, never think that. Whoever you are, whatever you may, may do or have done, you are accepted in, in the beloved. And finally, something to imagine. I love this. Uh, I brought with me a copy of C.S. Lewis's most famous sermon. It's called The Weight of Glory. Do you know where that phrase comes from? Actually, it comes from 
2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, this slight momentary affliction, by which he means our whole earthly life, what a way to describe it, huh? A slight momentary affliction, it doesn't last all that long. 60, 70, 80, 90 years, maybe less. It's an affliction because it's filled with suffering and sorrow, some more, some less. Ultimately, in the end, if we live long enough, we'll lose it all. (laughs) All our capacity, all our ability will be reduced to a shell of a human being. Something to look forward to, huh? (laughs) But what does he, he goes on to say, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away. The things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul, or C.S. Lewis, took that phrase, the weight of glory, and used it as the title of a sermon that he preached about glory. Because you see, we are predestined for glory. Do you know that's what predestination means, really? Another passage, a famous passage of Paul's from Romans 8, all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he foreknew, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It's so certain that Paul puts it in the past tense. Predestined to be conformed to the image of the beloved son. Because someday, God's gonna look at you and he's not gonna say you're accepted in the beloved. You have become the beloved. You are accepted for yourself because you have been totally conformed to his image. And the glory that you have is yours now, not just his. So look at the person sitting next to you or someone sitting close and try to imagine them as filled with glory, as perfectly reflecting the character the thoughts, the words, the actions of Jesus. That's the point C.S. Lewis wants to make in this sermon of his, The Weight of Glory. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, 
we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are all mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he's your Christian neighbor, He's holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.